Jeremiah said that when he went to the potter's house, he was looking, and as the potter was working with a piece of clay on the wheel and making it into a vessel, that it crumbled in his hands. It came apart in his hands. And, uh, and it, what Jeremiah did not see then is he did not see the potter go, well, this piece of clay is trash and throw it away. What he saw was that the potter uh, uh, crunched it all up again uh, and then put it back on the wheel and formed another vessel uh, that, that, that gave pleasure to the potter. Uh, God's lesson was for the nation of Israel. And it was this, they were falling apart because they would not conform to what God was trying to shape them to be. Uh, however, God would take that crumbled mess and reshape it into what he wanted. Uh, and that was the message that God had uh, for Jeremiah to take to the nation of, uh, uh, of Judah. And so God's work on his people, sanctifying and perfecting them, making his followers more like his son Jesus, won't be done until we're finally in heaven. I think we understand that. Uh, but everywhere Christians should be trying to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We should be allowing God to mold us. We can't do it in and of ourselves. We can't be like, okay, so today I'm going to be more like Jesus. And then in our own strength continue to do that. We can't do it. We have to let God shape us. We've got to let God conform us. And, uh, and so uh, that's what we've got to, we've got to see. Uh, Christians everywhere should be walking in Jesus' footsteps, being built up in heaven. And what is that called? Anybody know there's a one word that we call somebody that's following in Jesus' footsteps? Disciples. Discipleship. It's following in Christ's footsteps, being built up, being shaped in his image. And God modeled it for Jeremiah and, and Israel as clay being molded by a potter to the wishes of that potter. And Jesus gave an example or gave several examples to his disciples about discipleship as someone building a structure. In fact, Paul takes this concept and he builds off of that. <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians 3, uh, Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, For ye are God's building. You are something that is being built by God. Uh, let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. And he says, look, he goes, there's, there's been a foundation laid, and that's Jesus Christ. Be careful, take heed on how you build on that foundation. Um, he says, for other foundation can no man lay than, than, than which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He says, we have a foundation, it's Jesus. Be careful how you build upon that foundation, because you are building a building. You are building a structure. Uh, and God wants to build that structure in his image. We are a structure that's being built on Jesus Christ. And the Bible goes on to explain uh, in, that, in, that same, in that same chapter that, that there's different materials that you can use to build. There's cheap materials, wood, hay, and stubble, Paul calls it. And, uh, and those cheap materials don't stand up to trials, don't stand up to a fire. Uh, but then there's expensive materials. Uh, there's gold and silver and precious stone that you can, that you can build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ uh, if you're a Christian. And, uh, and those not only withstand the fire, not only withstand the trials, uh, but when they go through that, uh, and when they go through judgment, they come out more precious, okay? Uh, uh, and so let's say, let's take this metaphor that Paul is using in constructing a building spiritually and everything, and let's, let's put this in, like, physical reality, okay? You're a contractor, and, or, no, you're not the contractor. You're the person whose, whose structure is being built. Let's say a house. Your house is being built. And let's say you have the choice. You have the choice. Money's not really an issue. You have the choice. Let's use cheap material 
or let's use expensive material that is sturdier, that is going to stand up to the elements uh, a, a little better, quite a lot better. Which one do you choose? Probably the most more expensive ones, okay? There's some people out there who be like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm going to go cheap and uh, pocket the rest, okay? Uh, uh, but that's all right. I mean, let's just say that this house that you're building is going to be in full view of everybody. This house that you're building, everybody's going to know. This one is your house. It's like it's going to have your name on there, you know, like the, like the, the Stark Tower, okay? My son's Iron Man, if y'all didn't know that. And so Marvel, Marvel issues are always present with me. Um, especially with Iron Man. But everybody's going to know that this is your home. Okay? So maybe considering that, you go, well, maybe I'll use the nicer materials. Maybe I'll make it look nicer. Maybe, maybe it'll be sturdier. Maybe it'll be stronger. I'll, I'll build it to where it'll be, I'll, it'll do well under pressure. Okay? And if you have the option, uh, uh, you would probably take the more expensive materials uh, if you have that choice. The thing is, when you choose expensive materials, what goes along with expensive materials? Money. Somebody said high cost. That's exactly right. Okay? When you choose expensive materials, you have to pay more for it. You have to work harder for it. Okay? And, uh, and so this is true not only in the construction world, but it's true also in the spiritual life as well. Okay? The thing is, uh, it costs more to choose an expensive building, to choose a building that is worthwhile. Look, it's easy to throw four cardboard boxes together and say, hey, look, I have made a shelter, but that shelter is not going to last for very long. Uh, it's a whole lot harder to get uh, a foundation laid. It's a whole lot harder to take that and then uh, uh, put support beams and then frame out the building and then do everything that you're supposed to do. Please don't have me build your house. Uh, <laughs> Wood, siding, all that stuff, all is good. Don't have me do it because uh, that's about all I know that goes into building a house, okay? But I know that, that usually the sturdier ones, are, they're taking longer because they're being more meticulous and, and they're choosing their, uh, uh, their materials a little bit better. But listen, it's true not only in the construction world, but it's true in our spiritual life as well. Jesus said that following him was like building. And it's just like building a tower, and when you build something, when you go into building and planning, I have several friends that, that right now they are building a house. I have a, a, a friend of mine that is moving into a house that her and her husband just built and, uh, and had, you know, had, had built. They didn't build it, but they had it built. And they're moving into that. But it took them a while. And, and it was an undertaking that, that over the last year and a half, they've been planning, they've been saving up money for, they've been making sure that they had everything right. And it wasn't something that they were just like, yeah, you know, let's, let's build a house, let's whatever, you know. It was something that they planned. And Jesus said, hey, you're going to follow me. It's going to be like building a tower. And what you want to do in your building the structure, you want to count uh, what it's going to cost you. You don't want to undertake this lightly. So let's go to our passage today. It's in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We're going to go ahead and read uh, uh, the whole the whole message right here that Jesus gives, it's from verse 25 <clears throat> to verse 34. Or verse 35. Look what it says. So there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother 
and wife and children and brethren and sisters. Yea, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear my cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. <clears throat> For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Thus happily after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an, an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray quickly, and then we'll get into uh, this passage. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. I ask, Father, that you would, you would bless uh, uh, today. Lord, that you would uh, help me to say what it is that you want me to say. Uh, Father, I have notes, uh, but Lord, I want to say what you want me to say. And so whatever it is uh, that I don't have written down, that you would like me to speak, I ask that you would put that uh, into my heart and into my mouth. Lord, take away the things that you don't want me to say. Uh, Father, bless us with your word. Speak to our hearts. Uh, help us to consider carefully the cost uh, and the, uh, uh, everything about discipleship. Lord, that we wouldn't be half-built Christians, that we wouldn't be half-built disciples, uh, that we would be a structure that you build and, uh, and that would bring honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So this morning we're going to break this passage down that we just read, uh, verse by verse, and much of our focus is going to be on verses 28 through 30 where it says, For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down uh, first and counteth the cost? whether he have sufficient to finish it. Lest happily after he have laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, uh, uh, all that behold him begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. The goal of this, uh, uh, of this lesson, of this sermon, is for us to understand that we need to not be half-built Christians, that we need to not be half-built disciples. Okay, We understand that we won't be finished to be being conformed to the image of Christ until we get to heaven, okay? But we need to be continually letting God build upon us and build us up in this uh, discipleship process. We've probably all heard the phrase, the cost of discipleship, okay? Uh, we know that truly following Christ comes with a cost, okay? It makes sense because salvation came at a high price, okay? It came at a high cost, not to us. To us, it was free, but it cost Jesus Christ his life. It cost Jesus Christ uh, suffering on the cross. It cost him the rejection of God the Father. It cost him, <clears throat> um, the Bible says, to be made sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, 1 Peter 2.24 says that, that he did no sin. He took the sin of the world in his body upon the tree, upon that cross. It cost him more than we could ever imagine it costing it cost us nothing. Now, following Christ, truly following Christ, is something that costs us something. Because we have to be willing to give up something. Okay? And today I want us to look at the cost 
of true discipleship. First off, I want to look at there are true disciples. And then there are, there are disciples that think they want to be disciples. You can call them false disciples. You can call them well-intentioned disciples, uh, whatever you want to call them. But there are people that started following Christ, and then they turned away from Christ. And look, this whole multitude is following Jesus, and he stops, and he turns around, and he looks at them. Look at verse 25. It says, There was a great multitude with him, and he turned and said unto them. And he starts to speak this thing about, Hey, uh, uh, if you really want to follow me, if you really want to be my disciple, this is what has to happen. Okay, there are several instances where Jesus looks at a multitude and he starts telling them, if you really want to follow me, this is what needs to happen. And this is what you need to understand. Okay, this is not the only instance. Uh, we have one in, uh, in John chapter uh, 6. John chapter 6, verse 53. Jesus turns to this multitude that's following him and he says, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, Jesus is not talking about cannibalism here, okay? Um, he's been talking to them about the importance of bread and drink. He tells them, I am the bread of life. And he's making a jump from talking about things physical to talk, talking about things uh, that are spiritual. Okay? It's not a reference to cannibalism, but Jesus is saying to those that are following him. A lot of these people, we'll look at it here and, and we'll go through these verses in John chapter 6 uh, that follow. You're going to see that a lot of them were his disciples. They considered themselves disciples of Christ. They were followers. Not only did they consider themselves disciples of Christ, others considered them disciples of Christ. And so Jesus turns around and he says, look, just as important as it is for your life physically to have food, to have water, it's just as important, if not more important, for your spiritual life to have me. As badly as you need food to live, as badly as you need water to live, you need me to live your spiritual life because without it, you're dead. And that's what he's saying. He goes, you have to eat of me. You have to partake of me. You have to have fellowship with me as your need for food is, as your need for drink is. But because he said of these things, there were some people that didn't understand. They didn't make that jump with Jesus from the physical to the spiritual metaphor. And they looked at Jesus, and look at verse 66, John 6, 66. It says, from that time, many of his disciples... People that were following him. People that had committed, I'm going to follow Jesus. I ain't going to be like him. I'm going to go with him. Wherever he goes, I'm going. It says, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. There is a cost to discipleship. Let's go back to our text in Luke 14. Jesus starts to outline this cost. Look at verse 26. Jesus turns to this multitude and he starts to say, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Matthew 10 gives us a, a parallel passage of this. Uh, a lot of times people look at this and they go, oh, wow, I, I don't want to hate my mom. I don't want to hate my dad. Brothers and sisters are a little bit easier to hate uh, sometimes. Maybe I don't want to hate my parents, you know. Uh, what else does it mention here? Uh, 
It doesn't matter. Oh, yeah, wife. Easy to hate the wife. You know, I'm just kidding. Uh, easy to hate the spouse. Okay? Sometimes. Hey, some days you wake up and you're just like, ah, I love her, but I don't like her today. And more days than that, she wakes up the same way thinking about me. Um, but anyway, but listen, uh, you might go, that seems like an odd command. If I'm to follow Jesus, then, uh, then I'm supposed to hate my family? That's, that's ridiculous. How is that possible? Well, we look at parallel passages, okay? Luke writes it down as hate. Matthew writes it down uh, as to love less. And that's exactly what this word uh, hate means, is to esteem less than, okay? Look what Matthew 10, 34 uh, through 36 says. It says, think not that I am come to send, uh, uh, sorry, Matthew 10, 37 through 39. It says, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There's parallel passages. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you love your family more than me, you can't follow me fully. If you're placing your family, your family ties, whether it's mother, brother, sister, father, wife, children, if you're placing them above me, you can't truly be my disciple. You'll end up half-built. You'll end up with good intentions, following for a while, but not following through. And, uh, and so, you know, we have to hold Christ in first place above all familiar relations. And the reason is not given in Luke, but Matthew does record the reason uh, in some verses right before 37 through 39. 34 through 36 says this, Think not, Jesus is talking, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I am come not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set men at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of where? His own household. Listen, there will be times that following Christ will put you at odds with your family. There will be times that following Christ and following family go separate directions. And if you're committed to be a disciple of Christ, you've got to say, I'm going to follow Christ. And you know what? It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you an argument with your family. It's going to cost you rejection from family. It's going to cost you misunderstandings with family. It's going to make people in your family think, well, he hates me. She hates me. Because they'd rather be doing this than doing what we've always done. Or doing this with us. Whatever that case may be. Following Christ will at times put you at variance and at odds with your family. When the time comes to choose between Christ and a family member, Jesus must win. We must be resolute in following Jesus if we are truly to be his disciple. But that's not the only cost. The cost is self as well. There in verse 26, we look again and it says, uh, uh, you, have to hate not, uh, you have to hate your, your own father, mother, wife, children, brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life also. If you don't, you can't be my disciple. It's clear and it's known to us that we are probably our own worst enemies when it comes to following Jesus. When the time comes to choose between Christ and us, when it comes time to choose between Jesus and our convenience and our comfort, man, sometimes we are our own worst enemy. My life's ambition must be Christ and nothing else. To give up control over plans and goals 
That's a hard thing to do. But it's a requirement to follow in Christ. There are were, there were other, and we'll, we'll get into it in the EQ time. There were times where Jesus was going and he's calling people to follow him. And they go, oh yeah, Lord, I'll, I'll follow you. But first, let me go do this. And other people go up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I'll be your disciple. And Jesus says, great, follow me. Okay, first let me go, go, go check on this first. And Jesus says, you can't. You either follow me or you don't. Okay? How many of you have done ride-alongs with police or paramedics or anything like that? Anybody? All right. Several of you all. Listen. There's no ride-alongs in discipleship. You either, you either join the force, as it would be, or, or you don't. Okay? And when Jesus turned around to this multitude and he tells them, hey, this is what it's going to cost you. And when back in John, he turns to a multitude and says, hey, this is what you have to be willing to do. I have to be your all in all for your spiritual life. Many said, Ooh, that's too much. This ride along is over. And they left. The disciples didn't dictate where Jesus went. They followed him. They followed even when it took them to uncomfortable routes. None of the disciples wanted to go to Samaria. And Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. I've got to. And I'm sure some of the disciples were like, hold on a second, Jesus. Are you sure? We don't like Samaritans. Samaritans don't like us. Are you sure? Yeah, I must needs go through, through Samaria. And so they followed him through Samaria. Took him to places they didn't want to be with people whom they didn't want to interact. It got them into situations they thought were illogical. In John chapter 11, uh, uh, Lazarus, they've just, they just uh, uh, gotten the news that Lazarus has died. And, uh, and at this point, the Jews know, and, and the disciples know, and Jesus knows that there in Jerusalem, there's a plot to arrest Jesus. They know this. And Lazarus lives, lived in Bethany, which is right outside Jerusalem. And when Jesus finally says, let's go to Jerusalem, the disciples get up and go, oh great, we're going to go and die also with Lazarus. <laughs> it was illogical to them. Jesus, why are you going to Jerusalem? They want to kill you there. Well, I guess we're all going to go and die. It was illogical, but they followed him even when it didn't make sense in their logic. We've got to give up control. We've got to give up plans. We've got to give up goals. And that's a hard thing to do. And look, when it comes time to choose between our desires, our goals, our comforts, our wants, our needs, and Jesus, Jesus must win. He's got to. Or I can't be his disciple. Here, verse 27. Here's another cost. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's a cost of suffering. Crucifixion was a cruel punishment. Criminals were forced to carry their own cross. Okay? Imagine being uh, 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 on death row and your sentence is uh, lethal injection. And, uh, and they say, hey, uh, so, uh, so you need to hold on to these medicines we're going to inject into you. These chemicals we're going to inject into you. Thanks. Hold on to those and carry them over to the... Go ahead and load them up. And, then, and yeah, just strap yourself into that chair. And that wouldn't fly today. 
Because in our Constitution, there's something against cruel and unusual punishment, right? But the Romans didn't have that, okay? If they'd have had guns there, you'd have been making the bullets for your own execution, okay? Uh, uh, but they didn't have guns. Then they had crosses and crucifixions. They said, here, carry that cross. And you carried your own cross to where you were going to be crucified, and that's what Jesus did, okay? And Jesus looks at his disciples and this multitude that's following him, and he goes, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to carry a cross, and it's going to be suffering, okay? Uh, uh, we wear crosses as necklaces, as, as, as emblems. We stick it on our car. We put stickers of it. We hang crosses on our walls, and we have crosses as well, and there's nothing wrong with that. We got to understand that back in this day, that cross was a mark of shame. It wasn't something to be proud of. It was a shameful thing. It was a suffering thing. And Jesus said, you're, you're, you're going to have to suffer if you're going to follow me. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Not maybe, not someday, but they will. John 15.20 says, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. And Jesus says, If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Listen, to follow Christ is to identify with him. Even as the world persecuted Jesus, we are to expect persecution as well. And so Jesus outlines the cost. And now he talks about, in the next few verses, about the importance of considering those things before you step in. He tells us the cost. Love him and follow him above everything else. And then verse 28, he says, For which of you intending to build a tower? Sit it not down first and count it the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it. Lest happily he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it all. That, and, sorry, and is not able to finish it. And all that behold him begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, was not able to finish. For what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 men to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is yet far a great way off, he sendeth an embassage and desire conditions of peace. The following of Christ cannot be a decision that is entered into lightly. Just like a wise builder is going to consider the cost and how he's going to provide for that cost in building a tower. Just like a strategist is going to consider what it's going to take to win a battle. And if he can't win the battle, if he's going to sue for peace, we must consider what it costs to follow Jesus. Jesus makes it plain that the cost of discipleship is everything. Okay? If there was any kind of doubt that the cost of discipleship is everything, Jesus makes it clear in the next verse. Okay? Look at verse 33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Listen, some people have taken this verse and said, what you need to do is go and sell everything you have, give the money to the church, and go live on a hill somewhere. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what he's saying. You just have to be willing to forsake it. Look, we understand the concept of forsaking sin and, and, and rejecting sin, rejecting sinful lifestyles, rejecting sinful habits. That's, that's a concept that's a little bit easier for us to understand. 
But what about things that aren't sin? What if God asks you to give up something that, well, it's not, it's not bad. My job is not bad. My home is not bad. Where I live is not a sin. And you want me to go somewhere else? And you want me to do something else? You, you want me to reject this? And look, it's what, it's what God did with Abraham. Abraham understood this concept. It took him a while to figure it out. Abraham was very self-centered. Anytime he spoke with God, he was like, God, when's, when's my stuff coming? When's my inheritance coming? When's your promise to me going to be fulfilled so that I can be blessed and I can be a blessing to others? Well, really, so I can be blessed. And it took him many, many years to figure this out. But when he finally did, he laid a hold of that concept and just took it. And God tested him one more time and he said, Hey, Abraham, that son that I promised you, that son that you love, the son of the promise, Isaac, I want you to go take him and sacrifice him. And Abraham said, okay. And he went and he took him. And he got everything ready. He didn't make excuses. He didn't make delays. He went and took him to the place. And for, and for two or three days, he traveled to this mountain. He had two or three days to mold this over in his head what he was about to do to his precious son, his only son of the promise. And still, he laid Isaac there on that altar. And he raised his knife. And God said, okay, stop. Now I know. Now I know. You think God knew before that that, Mo, that, that, that Abraham would, would obey? Yeah, God knew. But you know who didn't know? Abraham. No, Abraham, well, Abraham had the good attitude. He was going to obey. But, but until you're in the situation, you don't know. Because we don't know everything. And God put Abraham in that situation so he would know that Abraham truly had given up everything that was precious to him in order to follow Christ. You know what Abraham later said? He didn't say, Isaac is my inheritance. He said, the Lord is my inheritance. The Lord is my heritage. That, that's the most important thing. Oh, for many years it was looking forward to that son, looking forward to that son, looking forward to that son. But then he grasped a hold of everything must revolve around God. And when he did, Abraham changed his tune to the Lord is my inheritance. Listen. He's encouraged, Jesus is encouraging his disciples to not go in halfway. To not just kind of wade out into the shallow end of the pool. He's saying, jump in the deep end or just don't get in the pool at all. Okay, how many of y'all are gamblers here? Nobody, nobody wants to raise their hand. Awesome, yes. All right, so my Texas Hold'em players, okay? I only play on the apps. I don't actually gamble money for the people watching online. All right. So you get yourself in a situation where you got a pretty good hand and somebody else is just like, up in the bet, and up in the bet, and up in the bet. And you know it's going to get to a point where somebody's going to say all in. And they're just going to shove all their chips all in. And if they have more than you, if you're going to match that and continue to play, you have to do what? You have to, you have to put all in. And you have to risk it all. 
and be willing to let go of it all to continue playing that hand. Or you fold. There is no in-between. You either go all in or you fold. And look, that's what Jesus is telling those people that are listening to him right now. He says, you either go in or don't play. Because if you follow halfway, you'll end up being just half-built. If you're half-dedicated to God, half-dedicated to family, partially dedicated to self-interest or anything else, chances are it will pull you away from God and your spiritual life will be a half-built one. Not only that, but it will be a life that others will see as half-built. Look, Paul told the Galatians, hey, you were running really well. You were running that race really well. Who stopped you? Who obstructed you? Who hindered your run with Christ? And the letter of Galatians is a letter encouraging to get back with Christ and get back to running that race well, to not do it halfway. So we see Jesus teaching about the cost and the importance of counting or considering the cost. But after this, Jesus begins to say that there's a price to following Jesus himself, but there's also a price to not following him. Let's look at the cost of not following Christ. Matthew 5.13 tells us, uh, we, we read Jesus saying, ye are the salt of the, of the earth. Okay? In that same light, in that same context, he says, you're the light of, of the earth. Okay? You're supposed to be a city that's set up on a hill that shines for everybody to see. You're not supposed to be a light that's hidden under a bushel. It's supposed to be actually be useful. People are supposed to see it and give glory and honor to God when they see your good works. When they see you doing things that are good, they should be able to look at that and give honor and glory to God. Not honor and glory to us. That's not what it's about. It's honor and glory to God. He says, you're the, the salt of the earth. And then he says it again here, and we read it again here in Luke. And Luke says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Look, salt is good. There are certain foods that just aren't worth eating if they don't have salt, okay? Um, cucumbers. I like cucumbers, but just cucumbers by themselves are rather bland. You put a little bit of salt on a cucumber, great. Not a lot, just a little bit. Watermelon is great. You put a little bit of salt on there, it's even better. If you put chili powder on there and lime, it's even better. Okay? But Jesus didn't say you're the chili powder of the earth, you're the salt of the earth. All right? That's why I didn't make these sayings up. Jesus did. Okay? Like, you're the salt of the earth. Look, steak is good, but really, a steak without any kind of seasoning on it, yeah. But you put some salt on there, it's a whole lot better. Let me put some garlic on there. Anyway, look, salt is good. And Jesus said salt is good. But if that salt loses its saltiness, if that salt loses its savor, loses its flavoring ability, its ability to bring out the good flavor in food, then it is useless. And look, when I'm not close to the Savior, I lose my savor my ability to add a good flavor to those around me. That ability only comes from Jesus. And salt is a preserving agent also. And I can't preserve the world around me if I'm not close to the Savior. 
I don't have the ability on my, on my own to preserve my family and keep my family good. I don't have the ability to preserve my friends. I don't have the, preser- the ability to preserve my community. I don't have the ability, and you and I don't have the ability to preserve Decatur and whatever goodness is there. But God does. And he chooses to work through us. And Jesus says, hey, you are a preserving agent. God told, God told Solomon, Solomon, because you've, you've come away from me, I'm going to divide your kingdom. But it's not going to happen yet. I won't do it in your lifetime. Does anybody know the reason that God gives Solomon why he won't do it in Solomon's lifetime? It's not because of Solomon's goodness. It's because of David. He goes, because your father... I'll leave you king over the entire nation of Israel. But after you die, it's split. Because your father. Listen, David was a preserving agent to his son even after David had died. Because David chose to stay close to the Savior. Listen, David messed up big time, lots of times. But what did David do? He kept going back to God. He would repent and go back to God. He would repent and go back to God. To the point that God called David a man after his own heart. Look, stay close to Jesus. It's a preserving agent. Listen, once again, let's go back to Abraham before we close this. Abraham knew the preserving agent that a just person could be. God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham realizes, oh, Lots in Sodom. Lots in that area. And he starts to bargain with God. And if you want to read the story, it's really, really interesting. It's in Genesis chapter 18. And Abraham starts to bargain with God. And he says, God, what about for, for 50 men that are just, you know, that are righteous, 50 righteous men in, in, in Sodom, would, would you stay the destruction? And God says, sure. If there's 50 men, if I find 50 righteous men in Sodom, we won't do anything. I won't do anything. I won't destroy them. And Abraham says, good. Okay, Lord, what about, what about 40? What if there's 40 righteous men? And God says, sure, if there's 40 righteous men, I'll stay, I'll stay the, the destruction. What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And God tells Abraham, sure, if there, is, if there are 10 righteous men in Sodom, I won't destroy them. And Abraham doesn't ask for more. And maybe incorrectly, Abraham thought, surely Lot has influenced nine other people to follow Christ. Surely. And, and, and he was wrong. Lot had kind of gone in and, and, and adopted a lifestyle and adopted a philosophy that was wrong. And, and Lot was saved with his two daughters from that destruction the Sodom and Gomorrah were, were, were destroyed. But listen, Abraham knew the preserving agent of somebody that was righteous. But if the salt has lost its savor, that's no good. Listen, the cost of not being a disciple is even greater than the cost of being a disciple. 
We won't get into this right now, but in the EQ time, so I hope you stay. In the EQ time, we're going to look at what Jesus says. Hey, there is a cost to being a disciple, but there's also a payout to being a disciple. There are benefits. There are blessings for it. And uh, um, so we'll get into that here in a little bit. But listen, I would hope that everybody that is sitting here would say, man, my goal is to be more like Jesus. My goal is to be like Jesus. I want to follow him. And not just halfway. But maybe you've not considered how far you want to be like Jesus. Maybe you've never sat down and been like, oh man, giving up everything really means giving up everything. Not just giving up the bad things, but, but being willing to give up everything. And if you've never considered that, I ask that you would prayerfully consider that today. That you would say, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus. And I'm going to start right now, I'm going to start counting what that really means. I'm going to love Jesus above my own plans, above my own goals, above my own family, above my own friends, above my own job, above my own expectations, above everything. I'm going to love him. And I'm going to follow him. When it takes me to places I don't want to be. When it takes me to people I don't want to be around. When it takes me to, 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 to situations that just don't make sense. I'm going to give it up. And I'm just going to go. No matter what. 